the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The program, again, the number if you want to join me on the program, happy to take your call is 303-873-1935. We've been talking a little bit about extraterrestrials, interdimensional beings. We've talked about space a little bit, and, of course, I have been following um, Elon Musk in the sense of his his obsession with becoming extra with becoming an extraplanetary species, and I think I have a little bit of an insight about why that might be happening, and so. Uh, the truth is out there. So, Johnny, let's hit our, yeah, let's hit our X-Files. The truth is out there. What is the truth? And part of what I would try to bring to your attention is the fact that I think we're living in a, in a, in a world and who's according to the Bible, it says the whole world lies in the lap of the fallen one. And according to the Bible, there is going to be a judgment that's going to take place, a global judgment prior to the return of Christ. I'm wondering how much of interplanetary obsessions are motivated by a deep desire, perhaps, to postpone the judgment of God or to escape the postponement, or to escape the judgment of God. And I think that as a Christian, when we ask and we answer the question, well, how should a Christian view the idea of Mars colonization? How is Mars colonization different from any other kind of scientific or technical advancement, even with the creation of artificial intelligence or robotics or, or computing or other technological breakthroughs? So human colonization of other planets is a reoccurring theme in science fiction. You may not know this, but in the eighth grade... I had the great pleasure of meeting Ray Bradbury. Yep. Gino Geraci, eighth grade, Hesperia Junior High School. Ray Bradbury came and spoke to our little junior high school in the middle of the Mojave Desert. And so this must have also been in the late 60s. And, of course, Ray Bradbury was famous for the Martian Chronicles, which he wrote in 1950. 
and um, something wicked this way comes. I mean, he, what a fascinating human being. And, of course, when we think about the Martian Chronicles and Andy Weir's The Martian, sci-fi authors have been imagining human civilization on Mars for a very, very long time. And Elon Musk has sort of taken this idea. It seems to me that he has invented um, many of the things that he deals with, like Tesla and Twitter, and but again, um, SpaceX, because that's his passion. He really, really believes that he is on a mission to make us an interplanetary species. And so with advances in technology and growing economic concerns and worries about the Earth's environmental stability, the push for extraterrestrial habitation is at the forefront of the scientific community's focus. As a matter of fact, I was thinking about this. I heard um, that Mark Stein had been sued because he dared to suggest that uh, global climate change is a hoax. Now, remember, for many, many people, global warming or global climate change is settled science from their perspective. For many people who don't have a biblical worldview, their apocalypse comes from humanity destroying itself on this planet through abusing the stewardship of the resources of the planet. So Mars, one of Earth's closest neighboring planets, is arguably the best possible destination for human expansion beyond the boundaries of our world. Now, in my view, Mars isn't the best choice. It seems to me that both poles and the ocean would be far more uh, or less challenging to occupy, but that's neither here nor there. The temperature and the sunlight conditions of Mars' surface are closer to Earth's condition than any other celestial body in the solar system. However, with reduced air pressure and an atmosphere of only 0.1% oxygen, most human life wouldn't survive without complex life support systems and protective living structures. So imagine if Earth's atmosphere is hydrogen and oxygen and you have to create a life-sustaining, life-supporting system and a protective living structure anyway, why wouldn't Antarctica or the Arctic Circle be a far more pleasant choice? But still, the scientific community persists in discovering a way to see science fiction become science fact on Mars. So Christians don't need to fear Mars colonization efforts. Colonizing Mars 
is not akin to abandoning earth or the world God has given us. The Bible tells us that everything in God's creation, galaxies, stars, planets, people, plants, animals, what if I suggested to you that everything is created for God's glory? And, of course, if we think of passages like Psalm 8, verse 3, where it says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you've set in place. Or Psalm 19.1, you're familiar with it. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. Think about Isaiah chapter 43, verse 7. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. So God seems to believe that he made everything and everything belongs to him and everything is for his glory. So I'm going to suggest to you we're not forbidden from exploring our world. So does that mean we're forbidden from exploring other worlds? Is it possible, spiritually speaking, that humanity could glorify God as effectively on Mars as it can on Earth? I think a much more difficult question is, does humanity glorify God on Earth now, by and large? Or are they in rebellion against God? This is Gino Geraci, 303-873-1950. Hey, welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. This is Gino Geraci. So glad you could join me on the program. 303-873-1935. Let's see who's up. Chip, welcome to the program. Thank you. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can. Okay. Uh, my friend Aaron and his wife Erin uh, have a son, Graham, who in March is going to uh, have a full spinal rearrangement surgery. And, wow. And, um, you know, he's, he's had problems since he was born. So um, instead of just me praying for him, I kind of like the whole state of Colorado to do it. <laughs> Sure. Well, let's pray for him now. Tell me again the name. So you said Aaron. I, I take that to mean A A R O N, and yeah. and then Aaron the E R I N is the mother. Correct. Wow, that's pretty special. And and the son's name, Graham. Graham, and he's going to have a spinal rearrangement surgery. Yeah, in March at Children's Hospital. Okay. Well, let's pray. Let's pray for them. Lord, we we do pray for this family, and we pray for this person who's going to have surgery. Lord, again, I'm thinking of Psalm uh, 34, where it says, The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. The, 
And so, Lord, we pray that you would attend unto our prayer, that, Lord, as you know this family and you know this person and all the doctors who are going to be uh, associated with this uh, surgery, Lord, we pray that you'd give them wisdom and guidance. Lord, we're grateful for every technological breakthrough that have been made in order to restore this person to health. But, Lord, we know in the end you're the great physician. You are the person who has ordered the universe and even all of the separate bones in this uh, in their son's spinal column. So, Lord, we pray that you would restore him to wholeness and wellness. Frankly, Lord, we pray that you'll heal him supernaturally, miraculously, and that they'll, they'll rejoice. But if for whatever reason you decide not to, to, to heal that way, Lord, we pray that you would restore him to wholeness and wellness in a way that will glorify you. Lord, you told us that we could trust in you with all our heart and that we don't have to lean to our own understanding. Lord, we don't know exactly how all of this is going to be accomplished, but you said that if we would acknowledge you, that you would make our paths straight. So, Lord, you've invited us to pray. You said, if there's any sick among you, pray, and that's what we're doing. So, Lord, intervene in this family. We pray for wisdom and support and encouragement for the family. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Hey, you are welcome, and thanks for listening. No problem. Appreciate it. (laughs) Bye-bye. 303-873-1935. And again, if you want to join me on the program, producer John is standing by to take your call. 303-873-1935. We were contemplating um, Mars colonization. And should a Christian fear going to the moon or to Mars? And perhaps a good argument could be made that whether a human being goes to the moon or to Mars, that God is omniscient, omnipresent. Is the Lord present on the moon and Mars? I think that the answer is yes. Well, what if a believer goes to the moon or Mars? Well, the body's the temple of the Holy Spirit no matter where you go. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16, of course, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Holy Spirit dwells within you? So imagine a person goes, well, wait a minute. If a believer goes to the moon or Mars, do they have to worry about being left behind in the rapture? And I would say, well, God isn't limited by the bounds of Earth's atmosphere. Oh, by the way, if the unbeliever goes to the moon or Mars, will going to the moon or Mars mean that you'll escape God's judgment? I think the answer is no. God isn't limited to the Earth's atmosphere. Um, Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 23 and 24. Jeremiah writes, Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places 
so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. Interesting. 303-873-1935. That's the number if you want to join me on the program. In 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, it says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. This is, of course the prayer for the dedication of the temple. So politically speaking, one of the concerns with colonizing Mars is how civil law and culture would grow or be established on a Martian colony. So, by the way, if Elon Musk establishes a Martian colony, will it be a part of the United States of America? Well, in 1967, the United Nations created what was called the Treaty on Principles Governing the Activities of States in the Exploration and Use of Outer Space, including the Moon and other celestial bodies. So according to this treaty, it stipulates, and I'm quoting, no country may take claim to space or its inhabitants, pause. Well, does that mean a country can claim the moon as its own? According to this treaty, the answer is no. What about Mars? Well, according to the treaty, no sovereign state on the planet can do such a thing. I'm wondering if the treaty might change if governments changed on the earth or there was a global governance on the Earth. Now, since colonizing Mars would present such dangerous and challenging obstacles to human life, it's assumed that community laws on the red planet might be a little bit different from those on the Earth. If Mars colonization is actualized, Christians within the scientific and political community should be vigilant in helping to establish a moral, humane laws and practices for this new civilization. So I'm wondering, I I heard an interview done by Elon Musk, and he was asked, what do you suppose it looks like? At what point will we be on the moon establishing a base on the moon that might serve in relay towards Mars? And when you get there, like the Mayflower Compact, um, is there going to be some sort of governmental uh, principles that you're going to outline? So what do Christians think about all of this? How do Christians think about scientific endeavor, the expansion of knowledge, scientific research, and interplanetary study. Well, for many people, they paint a very gloom picture. But 
I guess these are things we could think about. 303-873-1935. I'll be back, hopefully, prayerfully, taking your calls, answering your questions. 303-873-1935. I'll be back. Gentlemen, this is Gina Geraci. So glad you could join me on the program. The number is 303-873-1935-303-873-1935. And again, if you'd like to join me on the program, happy to take your call. Producer John is standing by to take your call. And one of the questions that we've posted just recently at gotquestions.org in the new category (laughs) is this question, was Jesus a Palestinian? Now, to answer this question, we should carefully define terms. References to Palestine have taken on different meanings over decades, centuries, and different implications from their historical use. Jesus' first coming to earth was as a Middle Eastern man, native born in Bethlehem. He's literally from the city of David. So this is currently part of a territory that's been assigned to the Palestinian West Bank. So he's born in Bethlehem clearly controlled by the Palestinians. He is raised in Nazareth, clearly controlled by the Palestinians. But in the modern state of Israel, his religion and ethnicity are and were inarguably Jewish, not Arabic. Now, depending on which version of Palestinian one chooses, Jesus may or may not fit that description. However, based on the typical sense in which we would use the word, Jesus was not Palestinian. Jesus would fall under the definition of Palestinian in a historical, in a geographical sense. He was born, raised, died, and resurrected in a region where for millennia it was called Palestine. But prior to the establishment of the modern state of Israel, the term Palestinian was likely to apply to Jewish residents of the area or anyone living there as it was to a Muslim or Arabic citizen. So you need to think about that for just a moment. Prior to 1948... Human beings, whether they were Arab, Druze, Jewish, were referred to as Palestinians. Over time, the term Palestine and Palestinian has taken on a more narrowed definition. In modern sense, those typically refer to the majority Muslim and Arabic people living in the territories called the Gaza Strip or the West Bank. So for the statement, Jesus was Palestinian, to be meaningfully true, one cannot use the modern definition of the term. So expanding the definition to include Jesus would require including the current Jewish residents of Israel, 
which would sort of defeat the purpose of using Palestinian to identify ethnic or regional group. So when seeking to disrupt stereotypes about Jesus, we sometimes oversimplify ideas or stretch their definition. For example, Jesus was not a refugee in the modern sense, yet aspects of his life echo the experiences of people today. Does Jesus flee persecution in the sense of his when Herod's slaughtering the, the, the children, yes, he goes to Egypt. Yes, he comes out of Egypt. So it's valuable to remember that Jesus was not among the cultural elites of his era. But we can't ignore modern implications of the term refugee, lest we associate Jesus with things that weren't a part of his history. So in the same way, a person might claim Jesus was a Palestinian when seeking to emphasize his experience as a poor Middle Eastern man living in occupied territory, much as some would characterize those living in the West Bank or Gaza today. Jesus lived in a region historically called Palestine, but only after his death and resurrection and ascension into heaven. Palestina doesn't become a part of the Roman vernacular until after the time of Hadrian. So Jesus is not ethnically or religiously part of a group called Palestinian in the modern sense. Jesus is no more a modern Palestinian in ethnicity or religion than he was a modern American, or Russian, or Indian, or Brazilian, or Ethiopian. So Jesus, the gospel, Jesus's gospel, Paul talks about my gospel, but the gospel of Jesus and the, the gospel of Paul are exactly the same gospel. That gospel's for all people, all cultures, all backgrounds. So, for instance, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 19, Jesus says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all ethnos. That's the word translated nations. But we get the word ethnicity from that word in the sense that it is a not just a, a designation of a political geographical region, but rather of, of a people group. So he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, it says there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There's no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And in Revelation 7, 9, John writes, and this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every ethnos, people group, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes 
with palm branches in their hands. And, of course, the most important association he took was as a member of the human race. So remember, Jesus calls himself, his favorite title for himself is the Son of Man. It's his way of saying he's a human being, John 1.14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, the writer of Hebrews says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So in his role as the one intended to save all people, Jesus is a human being who comes into the world. For God so loved the world. The word world is a reference not to the just simply the birds and the bees and the flowers and the trees and the moon up above and a thing called love. It's not just the physical, geological, material world. It's the world of human beings. So for God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish but have an eternal life. So happy to take your call. We've got another segment coming up, 303-873-1935. If you've ever wanted to call in, we've got open lines. Now would be a good time to call, 303-873-1935. I'll be back. Hey, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. I understand there's a lot of snow coming today and tomorrow, or some snow today and maybe more snow tomorrow. So make sure you drive safely. The weather permitting, I hope to be teaching at Grace Bible Church, Grace Bible Church in Longmont. So my hope, my prayer, my plan is to be at Grace Bible Church this weekend. But, you know, we make plans and the Lord laughs. So Happy, happy to go this weekend if it's at all possible, uh, weather permitting. 303-873-1935 is the number. And um, I know I've got a call, and I'm waiting for that call, but someone had asked about the phrase, uh, what does it mean to rob Peter to pay Paul? I like that question, and I'm happy to um, answer that question. But first... We'll take the call, 303-873-1935. Daniel, welcome to the program. Oh, it's your favorite Italian brother. I just wanted to have a little fun and see who you like in the Super Bowl, bro. I like San Francisco. And Are you me, serious? Let me tell you the three reasons why. Okay, run it down to me, teacher. Number one, I went to the University of San Francisco. So oh, I my do, goodness. I, I, I do have some some connection second christian mccaffrey who went to valor high school here locally, yes yes he, he's a graduate uh kyle shanahan is a graduate of cherry creek high school the His Bruins, dad, yeah. yeah well mike shanahan was the coach of the broncos obviously yeah and his dad ed mccaffrey christian mccaffrey's dad yes played and so there's a there's a kind of a front range uh connection, connection yeah and a colorado connection so uh-huh. uh, you know and and again you you look at 
the great Patrick Mahomes, one of the great. I know. He is. He's so fun to watch, and it's impossible to not at least appreciate. You know, we we talk about we're made in the image of God, and and yeah. everything is created for God's glory. Mm-hmm. I suspect God created Patrick Mahomes. To be oh my gosh! <laughs> yeah, so he's he's a phenom, no doubt. So, so that's my quick answer. All right, we appreciate your time, Gino. And you know what? We will roll on Rigatoni one day. I'm positive. God bless you, man. Stay hey, up. Bless Bye-bye. you too. Bye bye. Mm-hmm. So back to the issue. Uh, what does it mean to rob Peter to pay Paul? <laughs> Well, again, the phrase means to take something from one party and give it to another party, but apparently it means the two parties are closely associated with one another and may, in fact, share some mutual um, origins or methods or a mission. So a similar phrase is to borrow from Peter to pay Paul or to unclothe Peter to clothe Paul. So the phrase is commonly used to describe the transfer of a financial debt from one party to another, but apparently um, it's a little more complicated. So it's unclear to where the phrase to rob Peter to pay Paul originated. But um, according to English folklore, the phrase was popularized in response to an event that was held in Westminster, England in the 1500s. On December 17, 1550, at Westminster Abbey was officially deemed a cathedral by the Anglican Church giving it a unique and privileged status. So, however, 10 years later, the Diocese of Westminster was dissolved and the Abbey was absorbed into the Diocese of London. After this, many of the Abbey's assets were seized and repurposed to St. Paul's Cathedral for repair. So because Westminster Abbey was originally dedicated to St. Peter, it was said that the Anglican Church robbed Peter to pay Paul. So obviously that's not what it has come to mean in our culture and society. It means to take something from someone who may rightly deserve it to pay someone else So it's possible that the phrase robbing Peter to pay Paul developed more naturally over time rather than to a specific event. Both Peter and Paul start with the letter P. So you have natural alliteration. Both Peter and Paul were apostles, key figures in the early church. And in more traditional churches, Peter and Paul have the same feast day. Did you know that? It's June 29th, which happens to be my mother's birthday. So the phrase, to rob Peter, to pay Paul, isn't found anywhere in the Bible. (laughs) 
The Bible does record a time when Peter and Paul were at odds with one another in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21, where um, Paul is, dare I use the word, forced to confront Peter. Peter had begun separating himself from Gentile believers when in the presence of some legalistic Jews. So Paul rebukes Peter's behavior and called out his hypocrisy for perverting the gospel message of unity. However, these events don't seem to reflect the meaning of the phrase to rob Peter to pay Paul. So there's no biblical account of anyone robbing Peter in order to give to Paul, whether it's financial, material, or anything else. So another sort of quick question that's sort of related to that uh, someone asked, uh, did Paul ever meet Jesus in person? And I think the, the maybe the right way to answer that question is, according to Paul's own testimony, um, he, he, re, he meets him on the road to Damascus in his resurrected body. In 1 Corinthians uh, um, 9.16, he says, For I preach the gospel that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid on me. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. Um, so did Paul ever meet Jesus during the three-and-a-half-year ministry? And had the future apostle even seen or heard Jesus in person? And we don't have any direct evidence, but there's several considerations that that may favor the idea that Paul had possibly seen Jesus prior to the crucifixion. First, Paul was a president of or a resident of Jerusalem um, as a child, according to Acts twenty two three. And uh, there may have been years later to approve of his family. Um, he was there during Stephen's stoning. Um, <laughs> good, good one, producer John. Maybe Mary robbed Peter to pay Paul after Pup the Magic Dragon. Yeah, see, now I'm now my my head is spinning, and I'm I'm back in the '60s and Pup the Magic Dragon, and and the idea that this is a. Uh, a metaphor for marijuana before marijuana becomes legal, but probably none of that's true. So um, Paul's devotion to the law would have provided him motivation to be present in Jerusalem during the Passover, a time when both he and Jesus would have been in close proximity. Paul's a Pharisee. He would have been, I think, interested in the teaching of a popular, if unconventional, rabbi. Obviously, we have no evidence to establish clearly that Paul had ever seen or heard Jesus prior to his death. So I can't say for sure. Don't know. Hey, make sure you go to church this weekend if you are able. And remember, I'll be at Grace Bible Church, Lord willing, and the creek don't rise. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.